A warning that this episode includes discussions of violence, assault, force-feeding, and neglect. Take care of yourself. They basically made it sound like a dorm room for disabled folk, you know? And I was like, cool, I got here, and it wasn't like that at all. Now you wouldn't say that you live in a dorm room for disabled folk? Oh, hell no. Who do you think of when you think of long-term care facilities? Was it their decision to be there? Would it be yours? There are more than 13,000 people under the age of 65 in long-term care in Canada. And they're probably not who you think about when you think about long-term care. Maybe because we've called them old folks' homes for a really long time. But it's not like when you turn 80, you just magically end up in a long-term care institution. It's disability. That's the prerequisite for institutionalization. Hey, I'm Megan. I'm a disabled researcher and writer passionate about understanding and making known the conditions of disability and institutions in Canada. And this is Invisible Institutions. COVID-19 laid bare the risks of long-term care facilities, where more than 14,000 people with disabilities, primarily elders, died. That is 10% of the entire long-term care system population. As a result, a lot of people in Canada had their eyes open to the conditions of long-term care. We know that these institutions are full of issues for-profit structures, underpaid staff, neglect, abandonment, disease, trauma, unnecessary, and early death, to name a few. But how we think about long-term care and who lives in it needs to change. More than 150,000 people live in long-term care in Canada. Every single one of them is a person with a disability. Governments see and use long-term care as a solution to the housing and care crisis. But instead of addressing these root issues, governments have used long-term care facilities as a stopgap solution. One that is all too often used against people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And for five years, Patrick was one of them. Patrick is a young man with a developmental disability and his story is one of many in the Ontario Ombudsman's investigation into the crisis within developmental services in Ontario. Patrick lives in rural Ontario, where there is less access to services than in the city. But until he was 18, this wasn't much of a problem. He had friends and family living nearby. He went to a school system where they had access to technology he could use. He was in community, Of course, services were not perfect then either, but I digress. As time went on, much of his community, his family and friends left to move into the city. Patrick turned 18. He no longer had full days of support and as a result required more services. But living in a rural area, there were simply not enough services to sustain his well-being. This put a lot of formerly shared, compensated care 
onto his primary caregiver, his mom. And she was having a difficult time with the physical support required to help Patrick do things like get into bed. He got put on the waitlist for residential developmental services. That waitlist, 23 years long. With no other options, at the age of 23, Patrick was institutionalized into a long-term care institution. He struggled with his transition into the institution, which are sensory hell. The loud sounds, fluorescent lights, and strong smells are really challenging. And then there is nothing to do. People get antsy, irritable, impatient. I would too. Patrick struggled to adjust to this new environment and sometimes would get upset with staff. In one incident, Patrick accidentally injured someone with his wheelchair. It wasn't intentional, but the staff responded by confiscating his only way of getting around. For four months, this meant he crawled on the hard, laminate floors of the long-term care institution. And without a wheelchair, Patrick was made vulnerable. You see, in long-term care institutions, you have to pay for a private room. He wasn't able to. And he was repeatedly assaulted by his roommate. But it wasn't Patrick that was vulnerable. It was these institutional and developmental services structures that made him vulnerable. And I tell you this story not because it is shocking, but because it is not uncommon. Community and social ties are what help keep us safe and institutions fundamentally tear you away from this. For the last 60 years, we have institutionalized people with disabilities into the long-term care home sector. The first private, for-profit long-term care homes opened in Canada in the late 1950s. At that same time, large public institutions were bursting at the seams. They were overcrowded and under-resourced. There were more than 3,000 people incarcerated in buildings meant for half that capacity. But instead of moving people out of the institution and into community, they opted to reinstitutionalize thousands of people into the growing private long-term care industry. This episode, we're not going to rehash the major issues, but I would definitely recommend checking out the Canada Land Commons series, Pandemic to dive a bit further into the systems of long-term care in this country. Instead, we're gonna talk to young people with disabilities who are currently living in long-term care institutions about their experiences with COVID-19, their access to autonomy, the food they eat, and their dreams for the future. My name is Tyson Sylvester. I'm currently sitting outside. Um, I live at Axel Margaret. As a personal care home. Hi, Shoshana. Can you introduce yourself? I am an Indigenous disabled woman from Winnipeg. I live at Riverview Health Center, which is a long-term care facility in the southeast part of Winnipeg. My name is Victoria Lebec, and I am coming to you live from a nursing home in Halifax. I met Tyson in 2018. 
when he sat in a prison cell in the middle of Old Market Square, a popular tourist area in Winnipeg. Tyson was there in protest, demonstrating how the province's care system had locked him out of his own life. My name is Tyson Sylvester. I am 22. I put myself in a jail cell to show that the disability system and the way that it's working right now is the jail cell. Before Tyson turned 18, he had access to the services he needed to live a fulfilling life. He had access to the technology he needed to maintain a community online, to game, and to live life pretty independently. He dreamt of going to university to study computer science. But when he turned 18, this was all taken from him. The essential technology he needed to use his computer, taken. This locked him out of his community, his education, and his life. His home care got cut off, and the new services wouldn't even allow him to leave the house. His dreams of going to university were crushed. The only services he qualified for, home care, were kept at a paltry 55 hours each week. Home care is really limited. You can't leave the house, for one. And while you might technically qualify for 55 hours, often there is not availability for such, and the hours of service are super limited. For Tyson, this meant that he had to choose between breakfast and laundry, dinner or bathing. No one should have to make those choices. But Tyson was forced to, and it meant he wasn't safe. His only option? To live in long-term care. But Tyson fought this. He filed a human rights complaint in 2013 against Manitoba Health, Seniors, and Active Living, Manitoba Families, and the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. Eight years later, the Manitoba Human Rights Commission settled his case And a piece of that was creating a pilot program for 30 adults with more complex disability support needs to live in community. But right now, Tyson is still living in a long-term care facility. So I asked him what it's been like. Absolute fucking hell. What are your days like? Uh, I wake up in the morning. I wait for them to get me up because they don't get us up on our schedule. They get us up when they have time. So I have to let them know several days before I have an appointment early in the morning because I might not be up for it. And if it's something important, um, then I completely miss it. And then what do you do next? I um, go on my computer and just kind of just sit and play games and stuff and try to not think about that place. What games are you playing right now? It's a lot of, like, Yu-Gi-Oh! and stuff. It's uh, text-based games. So getting help second life. Ooh, that's a good one. Okay, so speaking of computers, I need to add a caveat here. These wonderful folks who I know and have spoken with today are a privileged bunch within long-term care facilities. Those with internet access. People with disabilities who live in institutions don't get access to the typical, albeit outrageously low rates of disability income supports. Instead, they get monthly allowances. These range across the country, but start at $123 in PEI and peak at $370 in Manitoba. 
That means in lots of provinces, these monthly sums supposed to pay for clothing, over-the-counter medication, transportation, recreation, don't even cover the cost of internet. And it's hard to believe, but internet is not paid for with an institutional setting. No, no, but you can pay for your own. And we've been fighting for Wi-Fi for three years now. If you're lucky, they might have internet in common spaces. The only place you have Wi-Fi is in the common room, and they close that down. The very places that were closed during COVID-19, which meant that as we all turned to the internet for salvation during the crisis, people living in long-term care facilities didn't have this respite. Thank God I have a computer, because I can at least go check the website, but the rest of them, they're screwed. We were basically locked in our rooms. I couldn't even go get a breath of fresh air. When they thought I had COVID, I was stuck in self-isolation. I would be completely alone. And the staff said, you have to wait for us to check in on you because we have to make sure we're done our rounds. Uh, we have to bundle up with PPE equipment and come see you last. I'm sure that made for incredibly long days. Yeah. You can never get peace in there. And you always hear this. Yeah. All day and all night. I mean, there was a fund for plants. That place never got plants. No plants? Not even being able to be outside and then doubly not being able to have plants. They literally got families to donate to make the place look better on the inside. And that never happened. Seems like such a... Like, such an easy way to make things, uh, like, just, like, a sprinkle better, but instead, not even that. Yeah. Honestly, regardless of internet access, living through COVID-19 in these institutions was hell. Here's Vicky. It was like a prison. And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but it was. Because we weren't allowed to go anywhere. We weren't allowed to visit other floors even. Um, to go see our resident friends because they wanted to keep us separate for disease control, which makes sense. But as a result, um, it was pretty lonely. And um, as someone with clinical depression, even though I was on meds and going to therapy, it was very, very tough. Vicky lives in Nova Scotia. Things were a little bit better than other harder hit provinces, but even still, restrictions prevented residents from even going outside for a breath of fresh air. And when things eventually did open up a bit, the only way Vicky was allowed to leave her home was by her dad driving three hours into the city. Over in Manitoba, things were more intense. Shoshana and I spoke in November 2020, and during that interview, she reminded me that as a society, we will be judged by how we treat our most vulnerable members. She asked, what do we want our legacy of the COVID-19 pandemic to be? That we failed our most vulnerable or that we did all that we could to protect them? Nearly a year later, here's how she has felt it. The COVID-19 experience has been truly awful. Um, 
March 16th, 2020, they locked us down. They gave us like two hours notice that from now on we were going to be allowed basically like no visitors whatsoever. They stopped our passes so we weren't allowed to leave the facility anymore except for medical appointments like at the hospital or like a specialist office and those were by medical transport and with an escort from the facility not a designated caregiver and then um we weren't allowed to have family drop off anything for us like laundry food supplies like anything anything at all anything that we needed we either had to buy from the gift shop or we had to arrange to have it shipped to us through the mail room they couldn't even drop it off at the entrance and have it like brought up for us um we weren't allowed to leave our rooms except to go to the shower room for a shower once a week we weren't allowed to um, use any of the common areas in the facility so the cafeteria um, the worship center the courtyard the library um, going outside none of that stuff was allowed not being allowed to worship shower see family and friends or receive food from outside is cruel and i'm gonna pick up on that food piece because everyone, and I mean everyone I've talked to who lives in long-term care, has talked about how much they hate the food. I love food. It's a really meaningful part of my day and social life. It's also really critical for me as a disabled person to be well-fed and nourished. It makes my pain and symptoms so much better. We all need food to survive but it can also provide joy and pleasure. But in long-term care institutions, pleasure is about the last thing you get from the food. The food is just terrible. It's made in another facility in another part of the city and they truck it in three times a day. And then what they do is they hold it in these thermalization units. So one half of the tray is cold and one half of the tray is warm, but it doesn't really, it just makes the hot stuff get kind of like soggy or like overcooked. And then the cold stuff gets like lukewarm and you get condensation under like the covers because everything is contained in plastic and it's basically the same choices on the menu the same day every single week it never changes so like it's just the same old stuff over and over and over and over again the food is not good it's not good i i and none of it is fresh. It is all shipped in on big, giant, refrigerated trucks. 
from the other end of the province. Um, so we get the stuff that was made the day before, and then they just heat it up in like a giant, they call it an oven, but it's more like a giant microwave. Before anybody jumps down my throat, I am very fortunate to have food on my table. But the first grass, bro. And we do get two choices during uh, meal ties, but half the time we run out. You know, they don't send enough for everybody to be full. Very rarely am I full. Have you ever had a meal at a long-term care institution or a hospital? They suck. The quantity of food to feed more than 100, 300, or 500 people is really challenging to individualize meals for people. Institutions are forced into bulk purchase, mass-produced food. Almost everything is frozen or canned. In an in-depth audit of Ontario long-term care homes, three of the five homes used foods way past their best before dates. One serving liquid whole eggs three months after their best before date. An audit after audit in long-term care has found that residents rarely get enough calories, but the food has way too much sugar and too many preservatives because provinces allocate only around $8 per day per resident on raw food. Shoshana has some really important things to say about the intersections of food, culture, and disability. And not only am I indigenous, but I'm also Jewish, so I keep kosher, and I'm also a fairly strict vegetarian, and so my options are even more limited, and like one of the main reasons why I'm in chronic care is because I have a lot of problems with my intestines and with eating specifically, it's really hard for them to provide me with food that I can actually eat. And because we don't have any kitchen facilities on site or on our unit, there's really not a lot that my husband can even like bring up and prepare for me to eat. Right now I'm suffering from malnutrition and I've been losing weight and I might actually have to go back on intravenous nutrition called TPN because it's getting so bad. And I think that if they could possibly like meet my dietary needs a bit better, I might be able to avoid having to go on IV nutrition or at least not be on IV nutrition every single day of the week. But the way it is now, like I'm totally going to end up on TPN because I'm not getting enough to eat. I'm not getting a balanced diet and they just can't meet my needs. And we can't meet my needs by supplementing, by bringing stuff up, just because of the limitations here. The institution's failure to meet Shoshana's basic needs for nutrition is devastating and degrading. Why is this place that's supposed to care for people with disabilities debilitating them? The truth is, institutions cannot care 
for the diverse needs of hundreds of individuals, and they're not meant to. We've seen this for centuries, and that's one of the main reasons people with disabilities fought to close institutions in the first place. It's not just about food, but meals provide good insight into how we treat people with disabilities. People should have choices in what they eat that honor their diverse cultural and dietary needs. Instead, institutions see food as something to simply keep costs down and necessary to keep people from dying. But that doesn't mean it doesn't kill them. People who live in long-term care have been dying from food-related events, particularly choking. And this year won't be different. In the Canadian Armed Forces report on their time in long-term care during COVID-19, they detail the frequent use of force feeding and drinking amongst staff. This resulted in frequent choking of residents. And this force feeding phenomenon, it's not new. A staff at the Heronia Regional Center explained that force feeding was one of the worst things to both see and do. Staff were told by managers that if inmates wouldn't eat their meals, they were to grab the back of their neck, pull their hair back, and shovel it in. The Heronia Regional Center was the first institution for persons labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities in Canada. For more than a century, labeled people were incarcerated in the institution, subject to horrific violence, segregated from their community, and prevented from starting families. After decades and decades of activism, the institution closed for good in 2009. And institutional survivors are crystal clear. They want the institution to be demolished. Instead, there are ongoing plans to build a long-term care institution on the grounds of the former site. Imagine fighting your whole life to close the institution down and then being reinstitutionalized in that very place where so much trauma was caused. It makes me so angry to think about a long-term care facility being built on the grounds of the Heronia Regional Center, when we can so clearly see the continuation of abuse, neglect, and isolation in the ongoing institutionalization of people with disabilities. We need to create new pathways forward, ones where people with disabilities are able to thrive, not just survive. We need new paths forward that allow, encourage, and facilitate people with disabilities to live in the community. But right now, people don't have access to autonomy and choice. Instead, people are subject to long-term care institutions. They are not a choice. We have no choice quite often unless you are independently wealthy. Um, you have no options. Um, it's like the only reason I live here is because the government said, well, this is the only place we can give you the care you require so you don't die. And I'm like, well, I don't want to die. So 
you know. And as far as this goes, like me living here, I will forgive them if they make changes, but I will never forget what they did to me or what they forced me to do to myself. So we know people with disabilities don't want to be institutionalized. The disability movement rallying cry really is nothing about us without us. So let's listen to people with disabilities about where they want to live. Not in a facility, I would either choose A, a group home, or B, like an apartment, but not with myself. And yeah, maybe with living with like one or two other people, but definitely not ever in a facility. I mean, I should have never been in there in the first place. We all have unique, um, we all have unique ways of living. And not all, not all of us belong in a setting like that. I honestly just, like, wish there was more for people in my situation, you know? And I'm hoping that in the future, people will be able to live a more normal life than what is considered normal in a facility. Okay, we're going to Fantasyland. I love Fantasyland. In an ideal world, in Vicopolis, which is what I've decided to call my ideal world, um, if I would have a bachelor apartment with caregivers who basically live with me, I'll pay you, but you don't have to pay rent. But as part of that, you and I, you and I would have to sit down every day and go, okay, what does Vicky want to do today? And work our schedules around so we both get what we want to do. Leaving Vagopolis, let's hear from Shoshana. Ideally, I wish that I could live in the community where I could receive all the medical care that I needed but in like a more home-like environment and not an institution, a place where my meals could be prepared fresh and like tailored just for me, where the providers come on site for me and there's like a nurse on site 24 seven or, and like a healthcare aide where my friends and family can come freely and visit me whenever they want and if like my husband wants to spend the night or like my sister wants to sleep over there's just like space for them to be able to do that i don't always feel like my needs are best suited living in a 388 bed facility and to be quite honest like i have prison pen pals and there's more similarities to between me and my living situation and the living situation of someone living in a prison institution. And to me, that just seems so wrong, like, and just outrageous. I mean, I don't believe that prisons are the answer for punishing people for crimes either. I I don't believe in institutions for anybody, for the disabled, for the mentally challenged, for people with developmental disabilities, for people with chronic illness. 
um, for seniors. Um, uh, institutions are not suited for individuals. They are suited for like bureaucracies. We deserve more than long-term care. We deserve freedom, autonomy, and choice. Institutions don't let this happen. And so we have to keep fighting. Invisible Institutions was created by me, Megan Linton, with support from People First of Canada and Inclusion Canada's Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization. Audio recording also by me, with production assistance provided by Kendall David. This episode was advised by the Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization. Audio post-production and sound design were by Helena Krobath, and our theme music was composed by Bara Ladik. Special thanks to Vicki Levac, Tyson Sylvester, Shoshana Forrester, Kendall David, and Kit Chalkley. Talk soon! <laughs>